Colossians chapter 1. Last week we finished up our study in Exodus, and this week and next week uh, we will look at some things that just are not part of a series but standing on their own. And then for the month of December, we're going to be thinking about um, the promised Savior, that Jesus comes as uh, prophet, that Jesus comes as priest, that Jesus comes as king, and then on Christmas morning, that Jesus comes as a baby. And so we'll be thinking about those things during the month of December. It's a wonderful time to uh, invite friends along who may not know who Jesus is, may have all manner of conceptions about Him, but may wonder why He came. Uh, It's a good time to invite them along. And of course, we'll have our uh, Christmas Eve service where we will talk about uh, who He is and why He came. Um, And so that's always a good time. Just uh, to make note of, of, of... one other thing in the bulletin, uh, and that is that I hope that you will mark your calendar for uh, December 16th and 17th. Uh, Susan and I, for a long time, had the pattern every other year of opening our home uh, for an open house uh, where all of you are invited, just not at the same time. And uh, I mean, you can come at the same time, it'll just be a lot warmer and a lot more interesting. Uh, but uh, over those two days, we like to set apart times where people can come and go, where we can celebrate the holiday with you, uh, have some food together, have some conversation together. Uh, two years ago, we were in the midst of, of COVID, so we didn't get to do it then. And we haven't actually done it since we've been in our new house a couple of years ago. So we're very much looking. We, we, don't, have open, we don't have an open house to show off our house. Our house is a lived-in place. It is not a museum, uh, but it is a place where we love for friends uh, and family in Christ to come over and for us just to enjoy time together. So I hope you'll do that. Colossians chapter 1, what I want to do is read verses 9 to 14. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, Colossians 1 is on page 983 of that Bible. I'm just going to read these uh, verses and then we'll pray together and consider them. This is what the Spirit says through the Apostle Paul. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy." giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Let's pray together. Our Father, how thankful we are to be able to come to you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and to know that in Him, that we who trust in Him have redemption and forgiveness of sins. We pray today that you will speak through your word, that God, you will reveal your glory in the preaching of your word until every heart confesses that Christ is Lord. We pray for his sake and in his name. Amen. 
It has been uh, well said that if you want to have a group of Christians feel convicted, you can talk to them about one of three things, giving, evangelism, or prayer. Now, in a sense, this makes sense that we would be convicted about these things. These are things that people tend to struggle with. And I think in part because there is warfare surrounding these kinds of things because they are particularly key in the building up of the kingdom of God. So our giving supports the work of the kingdom of God. Our evangelism, our sharing of the gospel, our preaching of the gospel advances and expands the kingdom of God. And our prayer, our prayer for God's people and God's work supports and strengthens in a way unseen, in a way that giving and evangelism is seen, are seen things. Prayer is the unseen way that we support and advance the kingdom of God. And so, genuinely, I pray that each one of us, including myself, will have a fresh sense of conviction in our prayer lives this morning as we consider this paragraph from Paul, because they are so important. Now, as many of you will know, as part of our weekly email regimen, uh, on Mondays and Wednesdays we send out uh, letters via email for prayer. And on Mondays there's a fairly routine system that happens within those Uh, within that email. We pray for some ministry within our church. We pray for some other church in our community. We pray for mission partners. We pray for civil leaders. You'll notice all those things happen each week as we do our pastoral prayer. And the things that we're praying for on Monday show up on Sunday. But then we also pray for a handful of Gray Road members. So this week it was Nellie White and Larry and Carol Wolf and Herman and Deanna Wood and Marcella Raycel. And I wonder if you get that email, and even if you don't, consider this question. How do you go about praying for those folks? What is it that fills your prayers? Now some of you will say, well, I don't know them. Uh, There aren't any requests. They're just this list of names. Exactly. That's why I'm asking the question. When you don't know someone and you have no specific prayer request, I wonder if you find it harder to pray for that person. I wonder if you're less likely to pray for them when you don't know them, when you don't know what's going on, or is it easier to forget? Well, maybe you answer yes. It is hard to pray. I, I am more li- less likely to pray if I don't know someone or if I don't have a specific request. Maybe it's not just difficult. Maybe in those cases you don't pray. Maybe you see that Monday email and you see the list and you see, well, I don't know any of the folks this week. And you don't pray because you don't care, but you're not quite sure how to go about praying for them. 
Well, this morning, I hope that Paul's words in Colossians 1 will help us all to grow in prayer. You see, the, the Apostle Paul is not just a great theologian. He's not just a courageous missionary. He's, he's not just a powerful preacher or a prolific writer or a humble servant of the Lord Jesus. He is a fervent prayer. And his summaries of his prayer life in the New Testament are helpful to us as we go about learning to pray. In fact, the chief way that the Bible teaches us to pray is by example. So we have the examples of people like Nehemiah or Hannah or Jehoshaphat or Hezekiah or Mary or Daniel or Jesus or the early church. We have the prayers in the Psalms. And here in Colossians 1, we have Paul's prayer. He doesn't write out his prayer, but he says what he prays. This is, this is what fills his prayers. And so what I want us to do this morning is actually to look at it and to learn from it. First, what I want you to see is that Paul prays continually. We have not ceased to pray for you. This church and its well-being are always on Paul's mind. It's always in his prayers. And actually, this isn't the only time this happens. The same is true with the Christians in Rome and in Ephesus and in Corinth and in Philippi and in Thessalonica. Every church that Paul comes across becomes a new church that he cares about. Every local church matters to Paul, so he never stops praying for them. That's actually one of the reasons why we should not stop praying for other churches. Sometimes we get this wrong idea that other churches are somehow competitors. They're not. They're comrades. We're not trying to take ground from them. We're trying to take ground with them. And that's why we pray for them. Because the kingdom of God in the end will not merely be built by individuals, but by healthy churches, plural, not just the one that I happen to be in. So my interest needs to go beyond the four walls of my own congregation. Because what is better for Indianapolis? One church that's healthy or a couple hundred or a couple thousand? More healthy churches is better for the city, isn't it? More churches that are committed to the Word of God. More churches that are committed to share Christ. More churches that care for people and love people. More churches that love one another and demonstrate their discipleship to Jesus by their love for one another. More churches that are hospitable, that don't hold their hand up like this so we check your credentials before you come in but churches who will freely share the gospel with anyone who happens to come in. Because every single person who would wander in here, on purpose or not, needs the Lord Jesus Christ. You have to believe that. So, Paul prays continually. And there are a couple of things that actually stand out about Paul praying continually in my mind. The first is that Paul doesn't know these Christians. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? Paul planted several churches on his missionary journeys, but not this one. He hasn't, he hasn't been there. 
All he knows is what he's heard. That's what he says in verse 9. From, and so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. Somebody has to come and give Paul a report because he hasn't been there. He doesn't know. Isn't that something? Paul doesn't know them. He's not spoken to them. He hasn't received a prayer letter from them. He's only heard about them. And yet he prays for them, and he won't stop praying for them. Now, how can anyone do that? That's the question I asked you. How do you pray for people that you don't know? How how can you even, where do you find the motivation to do that kind of thing? Well, I ought to. Well, yes, you ought to. However, there's more there. You see, here's the thing. Christians on the other side of the world and Christians on the other side of town all walk the same walk that we do. They fight against the same kinds of sins that we do. They face the same kind of suffering that we do. They fight to stay faithful like we do. They want to please God like we do. They are opposed by the world and the flesh and the devil like we are. You see, Paul prays for those he doesn't know because no matter how different they may seem from me, in the most important ways, they are the same as me. You have to remember that. Well, I don't, I don't know how to pray uh, for those around Mark and Roxanne Shingleton because I don't know that culture. I don't know those people. The things are very different there than they are here. Oh, but there's nothing that happens that's not common to man. They suffer with the same sin that you do and the same sin that I do. They have the same enemy that you do and that I do. They face the same stresses, the same strains. It may look different when you write it, write it down on paper because the circumstances are different, but underneath the paper, between the lines, it's the same. That's how Paul can pray for them. Paul knows his own need for continual prayer. If you just flip forward in Colossians, he doesn't just continually pray himself. He tells this church in Colossians 4, continue steadfastly in prayer. I mean, when you read that, don't read Paul saying, do what I say, but not what I do. He's saying, do what I do. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. And then verse 3, at the same time, pray also for us. Paul never hesitates to ask people to pray for him. He knows his own need. And so he knows that just in the same way he continually needs the Lord, they continually need the Lord. The same way he continually needs prayer, they continually need prayer. So he prays continually. The other thing that's compelling about Paul praying continually is that these Christians seem to be doing pretty good. (laughs) I mean, don't get me wrong. There's a reason he's writing this letter. There are all kinds of false teachings floating around from Greek philosophy, from Jewish uh, uh, legalism, from people promoting ceremonialism and angel worship. All, All manner of things are being bandied about in Colossae. And Paul wants to guard them against that, guard them against walking away from the sufficiency of Jesus Christ alone. However, if you look at the paragraph just before this one, you'll see there's some good stuff going on in this Colossian church. Not only 
Do they have a solid faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? But they love all the saints. Verse 4. God's word is already bearing fruit in them. Verse 6. There's evidence of the Spirit. This is not just ordinary love. This is love that's born from the Spirit of God, verse 8. In other words, this is a pretty healthy church. It's not that they don't sin, but they're doing pretty good. And yet Paul, continues, Paul continually prays for them. Now, I want you to imagine you're sitting in a group of Christians, all right? You're a Christian, and you're sitting in a group of Christians, and your goal in this circle is to pray for one another's spiritual lives. All right? And as you look at your life, you think, this is a, I'm in a pretty good season right now. It's not that you don't sin, but you find yourself hating sin more and more. You find yourself faster to confess and to repent and to seek other people's forgiveness. You work toward reconciliation faster than you used to. You're growing in grace. You're growing in your understanding of the gospel. God is clearly at work. I mean, good night. Even this morning, I shared Jesus with somebody. And so you go around the circle and then it comes to you. What do you say? What's your request? I wonder how many of us would be tempted to say, oh, I'm good. I'm, I, I'm actually, I'm, I'm, I'm doing good. That kind of answer is unthinkable to Paul. Paul. There isn't a day or season in life that we don't need prayer. Now, friend, when we are struggling, when we are fighting against some sin, when we are facing some crisis, we feel very deeply and very really and very continually our need for prayer. But the reality is there isn't a moment in your life, a day in your life, a season in your life where if somebody says, I'll pray for you, you go, oh, well, that's, you can focus your prayers elsewhere. I'm good. Let me just tell you, you're not. Amen. Struggling Christians need prayer for God's grace to help them see God's purposes in their suffering. Sinning Christians need God's grace to help them repent and change. Growing Christians need God's grace so that they will persevere and not turn back. There is no circumstance you can put yourself in where Paul will say, oh, you know what? You probably don't need prayer right now. To think that there are days or seasons where prayer isn't needed is actually to misunderstand prayer and to misunderstand the Christian life. We continually go to God because we continually need God. I need thee. Oh, I need thee. Every hour I need thee. Oh, bless me now, my Savior. I come to thee. Paul knows that, so he prays continually. But those things actually amplify. I don't say Paul prays continually. You know, there's a way to say Paul prays continually and then take out your fist and pound on the people you're talking to, right? Well, Paul prays continually. No, I think it's actually encouraging that Paul prays continually because he doesn't know these people. And because they're doing well, and yet he continues to pray, that ought to help us. That ought to spur us on to continually pray. 
It means we can pray and we should pray continually. Even if you don't know that Christian personally, even if you don't know a particular request, even if in your estimation that person seems to be doing pretty well, there isn't a subset of Christians in this room who don't need prayer. That's why that Monday email is so important. It's why we are committed to praying through the role. Because if we only prayed for one another, when we know one another, and when somebody tells me a request to pray, then friends, there are lots of people that we will never pray for as a congregation who are part of this congregation. And that just, can't, that just simply can't be the case. We must pray continually. You must pray continually. Our spiritual lives depend on it. The second thing I want you to see is that Paul prays specifically. Paul prays specifically. Isn't it interesting? Look at verse 9. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. Now, he doesn't stop there. He keeps going. He doesn't say prayers, thoughts and prayers, praying for you, or just send the folded hands emoji. He doesn't simply tell them that he is praying. He tells them what he is praying. And I want to tell you from my own experience, it is incredibly encouraging when someone tells me that they are praying for me. But I will also say that my heart is encouraged even more when someone tells me what they are praying for me. There's something about that. When uh, Charles Spurgeon was addressing um, children's Sunday school workers, and he was talking about prayer, and he encouraged them to pray with children individually so they would know his, their heart uh, poured out to God for them so they could hear that heart. And, then, and he told them this, while you are pouring out your soul, God may make your prayer into a hammer to break the heart that mere lessons had never touched. Have you ever just sat as someone else prayed for you? When someone else prays for you and they go to the throne of grace and ask for God's grace and mercy and help and strength and all of these things, don't, isn't there something more to that? Isn't there something more than, Lord, be with Derek as I'm praying for him, than to say, Lord, give Derek strength to endure the hostility of coworkers who hate you and don't know you. Give him strength to stay faithful. Keep him from, from compromising his ethics and all of those things, right? Do you hear the difference? It's not that I'm asking for something different. But the specifics bring more power to the praying. And, and actually, 
It can, it can be a catalyst for change in my own life. As somebody prays for me, I'm like, yes, Lord, that is what I want. Yes, because I may be in such a fog about my circumstances that I don't actually know what I should be thinking or doing. But as that person comes in and prays God's purposes for me in my circumstance, it's like the Spirit begins to blow the fog away and we can see more clearly. And so he tells them what he prays for them. What does he pray? Well, one thing he prays is that they will know fully. That they will know fully. He says, asking that you may, verse 9, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now, I could read that ten times and you may have the same question. What does that mean? Filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. What does that mean? Well, I think the key is if you zoom in on what his will is, then you can back up and begin to see what we're talking about. Uh, now, when, when I was in college, I wanted to know God's will. And every other person in my college group wanted to know God's will. And by that, I mean what we wanted to know is, what am I, gonna do? What am I supposed to do after graduation? Uh, where am I supposed to live? What kind of job should I get? Should I go to graduate school? Who should I marry? These were the kinds of, we wanted to know what is God's will in that kind of way. And those are big decisions. I mean, the end of high school, the end of college, these are crossroads in life where you have to make some big decisions and you do one thing because in that, doing that means not doing all of these other things where the path of your life, you know, you end high school and here are all your paths, right? And the farther you go, the more you make decisions and, well, this is the path I'm going to end up on. And so we wanted to know that. And certainly we pray for God's help and God's wisdom in those things, but that isn't what Paul's talking about. Paul's not talking about a subjective sense of God's desire in a particular circumstance. I will tell you that it's not wrong to ask, you know, Lord, if it's your will, would you open this door? Would you do this? Would you help me to understand what you want me to do? Am I supposed to take this job or not? I have no clue, Lord. Give me wisdom. Give me help. But primarily, those, the, the answer to what is your will is not like putting in your destination on your phone and it maps it out for you. It's more like the apps on your phone that track your course from back there to here. Like I can see how I got here and then I can actually see how God, God's will worked itself out in my life. Providence is a, an attribute of God best read backwards. I remember as a freshman, freshman year of college, all right, I just finished my first semester. I'd gotten good grades, uh, and I went home for Christmas, and while I was home for Christmas, I decided I'm going to drop out of college. And uh, not because I had, didn't like uh, Memphis, not because I didn't like living six hours from home, I did. I liked living six hours from home. Uh, I, liked, uh, I liked the city. I liked my friends. I liked all those things. Uh, no, the reason why I wanted to drop out of a school is because my friends had started a band in Knoxville, and I wanted to play in the band. So I was like, well, I'm just going gonna, gonna to go to Memphis, and I'm going to get all my stuff, and then I'm going to come home to Knoxville, and I'll just go to community, community college, and I'll, I'll figure it out later. 
So I drive six hours from Knoxville to Memphis, leaving everything that I had taken home, right? At home, all these clothes. I come to Memphis, I step into my dorm room, and I think, what am I doing? I am an idiot. So, I turned around and went six hours back to Knoxville (laughs) because all my warm clothes were there. And I got them. And much, I'm sure, to my parents' relief, I told them I am not going to drop out of school. I'm not going to flush a full scholarship down the toilet so I can go to community college and play in a band. And so I got, so I slept that night and with all of my stuff, the very next day, drove six hours back to Memphis. Thankfully, the ice storm of 94 delayed the start of classes, so I didn't miss anything. I had no clue what God's will was. But looking back, The experiences I had in school, the experiences I had in churches, ministries I never would have been a part of, a woman I never would have married, are all in the rearview mirror there. Paul is not praying that these people will figure out what kind of job they're going to get. He means something objective. He means God's set purposes that they can see and know. So when you think about the Bible, the way that the Bible often talks about God's will is in connection with the overall storyline of the Bible. So in Revelation 4, it talks about God's will in relationship to creation. In uh, 2 Timothy 1, God's will in salvation In John chapter 1, God's will in causing us to be born again. In John chapter 6, God's will that none of us would be lost who are in Christ. 1 Thessalonians 4, God's will for our sanctification. Ephesians chapter 1, God's will that we receive our eternal inheritance in heaven. That is... Is what I believe Paul is pointing to. Paul is pointing to God's set purposes for his creation and for his people, past, present, and future. It is God's will revealed in God's word. And Paul is praying they will be filled with the knowledge of that will, filled with the knowledge of God's will in God's word. And when he says knowledge, he, it, this is not something that is merely academic. This is something that's experiential. It doesn't just fill our heads. It fills our hearts. It shapes our hearts. It shapes our desires. Now, Thanksgiving's coming this Thursday, right? I want you to put in your mind, what is the food that you are looking forward to most on Thursday? What is the thing that if that doesn't happen, boy, it's just not Thanksgiving without that, right? What is your fa- Just think, what is your favorite Thanksgiving food? Now, there are plenty of facts about that food, right? Plenty of things that you can know about that food. You, could, you can know where it comes from, how it's sourced. You can know the recipe. You can know the texture of it. You can know the aroma of it. You could describe the flavors of it. Plenty of people could. Plenty of people can tell you those facts. But not everyone likes it. 
I know that's surprising to you, but not everyone likes it. It's not everyone's favorite. But you've encountered that food in such a way that your taste buds sing when, they, when it hits your mouth. You know what I'm talking about? You can't help you moan when it goes in because it's just that good. Friend, that's the difference between academic knowledge and experiential knowledge. Paul isn't praying that they'll be able to fill their notebooks with more facts about God. You may be able to talk about all kinds of things in the Bible. You can shoot down all kinds of things because you've got, you've got verses loaded in your conversational pistol that you can just fire away. But here's the question. Does God's Word make your taste buds sing? Does it make your heart sing? Does it make your soul sing? Is it like Psalm 19 goes on to describe like honey? Sweeter than honey on your lips. That's what Paul's praying. He's praying they'll be filled with that kind of knowledge. Full, filled, not partially, not glass half empty, not glass half full. Filled, filled, like, like Thanksgiving afternoon trying to find a comfortable position to sit in kind of filled. That kind of filled. Filled with knowledge of God's will in that way. To take it in where it's just all, it's, it's overflowing your plate and you just keep, they just keep taking it in and taking it in and loving it and loving it and loving it and loving it. That God's will will matter to them, that they'll treasure it, that they'll love it, that they can't live without it. And how does that happen? The end of verse 9 tells us, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. That word spiritual means of the Spirit. Only the Spirit can do this. Only the Holy Spirit of God can make you love the will of God. God's Spirit, as it were, awakens your taste buds to it. This is amazing. My oldest son, Caleb, all right? Growing up, he had incredibly odd issues with food, all right? He grew up, he did not like things that were mushy or things that were together or, or any of these things. And no matter how much we said it in front of him and said, just one, just take a bite, just take a bite, just take a bite. We could not make his taste buds do anything else. But now, he told us just last week how much he's looking forward to Thanksgiving. He said, why? Because now I eat mashed potatoes <laughs> and gravy. What happened? I couldn't force feed that kid into loving mashed potatoes to save my life. Just boom, it just changed. Who knows what happened? That's how the Spirit actually works. You can force feed all you want, all of the truth, all of the Jesus, all of the sin, all of the hell, all of the heaven, all of it, all of it, all of it, all of it. And you cannot make the taste buds of your child or your friend or your sibling or your parent or your grandparent. You cannot change their taste buds, but there is one who can. And that is the Holy Spirit of God. And it's the only way anybody's going to fill up with Knowledge of his will 
is if the Spirit is at work. So that's, that's what Paul's praying. So here's a way to pray for somebody that you don't know personally. You don't know what's going on in their lives, but you can, be, you can pray that they will be filled, that their soul will come alive when they hear God's word, that they will love it, that they will fill themselves up with it, that they won't just be facts, but the Spirit of God will be at work. So that they have joy in hearing God. Don't you want somebody to pray that for you? I need you to pray it for me. He also prays that they'll walk worthy. Now the reason why I know, by the way, that this God's will is not just some subjective sense for a desire is actually the very first word in verse 10. Which is what? So. Not like a child might say it. So. That's not what he's saying. This so means that what he's about to say in verse 10 is coming straight from what he just said in verse 9. And we don't walk in a manner worthy of the Lord by discovering what job we ought to have or what person we ought to marry or what college I ought to go to. We walk in a manner worthy of the Lord by discovering His will in His Word. In other words, right believing leads to right living. Now, to walk in a manner of the worthy of the Lord speaks of balancing scales. Okay? So, uh, maybe you've been to like one of these open farmer's markets where there's just huge stands of fruits and vegetables and all manner of things. If you were in something like that in the first century and you went and you wanted to buy this kumquat or whatever it is, you would put the kumquat on one part of the scale and then money in the first century was measured by weight, not by denomination. So the weights would, uh, you know, you put your pennies over here or whatever until, and then when those balanced, you know what you found out? How much the kumquat is worth, okay? So now what Paul is saying, he wants us to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. He's saying on one side is the Lord, his glory, his purposes, his grace, his love, his mercy, his salvation. On the other side is, your, is you, your life, your new life in Christ. And Paul is saying, live in such a way that the scales balance, not because we can be as weighty as the Lord, not in a million years, but in such a way that our lives demonstrate this is what the Lord is worth. So that our lives reflect his goodness, his mercy, his love, his faithfulness, his holiness, his lordship. And when that happens, when our lives, whenever our lives demonstrate what God is really worth, not what he's worth to me, but what he's worth according to the Bible, when my life balances that, shows that at any moment, then you know what I am? Fully pleasing to him. Fully pleasing to him. But what does that look like? What does that look like? Well, participles hold the answer, all right? Uh, Participles hold the answer. From verse 9 
oh, sorry, from verse, the second half of verse 10 through verse 12, you're going to find four participles, bearing, increasing, being strengthened, and giving. All of those modify fully pleasing to him. They tell us what it means to be fully pleasing to him. What does that actually look like with skin on? The first is, one is fruitful, fruitfulness, bearing fruit in every good work. This is a common picture in the Bible, right? It's the way you know an apple tree in your yard is healthy, if there's fruit there. And in every good work, in every way, in every area of life, Paul prays their spiritual health would be evident, that they would produce fruit, the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of Christ-likeness. Fruit, evidence that you can see it. The second thing is growth, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. What a, what a thing, isn't it? That the more we know God's will and walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, the more we will actually know God. Do you know that there are things you'll never know about God unless you walk with Him, unless you obey Him? You'll never know He's faithful. You'll never know He gives strength to the weak. You'll never know His help when you're in distress. You'll never know Him as a refuge if you're not actually walking by faith and not by sight. So growth in these things. Then the third is patient endurance. Verse 11, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. He doesn't simply pray that they will be strong or that they'll get power. This is purposeful power. This is power to endure, power to be patient, power to do both with joy. You see, dear Christian, you cannot endure the hardships of life you cannot endure the sufferings of life. You cannot endure the opposition of the world. You cannot endure that financial crisis. You cannot endure that diagnosis apart from God's power. You cannot endure that difficult person without God's power to be patient. And you certainly can't do any of that with joy unless God's power is at work within you. There are plenty of people who tell you they persevere, but they complain the whole way. They grump and they complain and they pound their fists and they kick, you know, they kick and scream like a crying baby as they walk through suffering, as they walk through hard people. This is not the Christian walk. Jesus Christ, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. Patient endurance with joy. And then fourth, thanksgiving, thanks, thankfulness. These are all, evident, these are all pictures of, of a worthy walk. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. In other words, God's grace in our lives should produce thanks on our lips. I mean, Thanksgiving, right, I've mentioned it a number of times, and around the table this Thursday, people will talk about what they're thankful for, right? It's not unusual for people to go around and each person say something that they're thankful for. 
But have you ever wondered, have you ever recognized that in order to be thankful, you have to be thankful to someone? We don't just give thanks in a vacuum. We give it to someone. And Paul says we give it to God our Father who has qualified us for heaven. The only way any of us could say we're qualified for heaven is because God has made us so. God has fit us for heaven. He has forgiven our sin. He has counted us righteous in Jesus Christ. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. What that picture is of of a parent reaching down and grabbing the collar of a child and snatching him back before he walks somewhere where he will get hurt or killed. It is is rescue from danger. It is yanking them back. And he has transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. If you're a Christian, you've been reassigned. Reassigned from slavery to redemption. Reassigned from guilt to forgiveness. Reassigned from wrath to grace. Reassigned from death to life. That's something to be thankful for, isn't it? And he's done all that through the Lord Jesus Christ, through his death and resurrection for us. But here's the thing, friend. Only those who belong to Jesus can be thankful for those things. It's not just the people who know these things that can be thankful for them. It's it's the people who really know them. Who don't simply know about God, but know God and have been known by God and have been saved by God and know that their forgiveness for sin is in Jesus Christ alone. Who have pled for his mercy and thrown themselves down before him and said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. These are the only people who knows what it means. These are the only people who know what it means to be qualified for heaven. To truly be qualified for heaven. To be delivered from darkness. And to be transferred into the kingdom of his son. You see, you may have walked in here. And in truth, you could not be thankful to God for any of it. Because it wasn't true of you. But I will tell you. You can walk out of here thankful for those things. If you will come to the Lord Jesus Christ. If you will stop stubbornly kicking against him. And thinking that your academic head knowledge of the Bible. That your good life are somehow qualifying you before God. If you will finally recognize that everything you need to be right with God has been accomplished in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you will be able to say, thank you. Thank you. All of this, fruitfulness, growth, patient endurance, thankfulness, all of this is what Paul means by a walk that is worthy of the Lord. In truth, if you just want to boil it down to its most simple, its simplest form, Paul is praying that these Christians will live the Christian life. 
that they will be Christ-like in their lives. Now think about this. Think about what Paul's doing. Think about this continual prayer to know fully and to walk worthy. Imagine if you prayed that way. Imagine tomorrow morning when that email shows up in your inbox and you see those names and you prayed this way for them. Maybe at first it's a bit clunky and formulaic and you pull out your Bible and you turn to Colossians 1. And if I take the names from last week and you say, Lord, I pray for Larry Wolf that he would be filled with the knowledge of your will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, that Larry will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, that Larry will fully please you, that every day this week that Larry will bear fruit in good works and he'll grow in the knowledge of God. Lord, would you strengthen Larry with all power so he can endure and be patient with joy? Would you open up his mouth so that he gives thanks to you for all that you've done for him in Jesus this week? Verses, Lord, be with Larry. You see how much that transforms your prayer life? See how much it could help you grow, help us grow if we pray that way? And then even when you do have a particular request, pray this way. Because no matter what the circumstance is, no matter what the burden is, no matter what the grief is, no matter what the cancer is, no matter what the financial circumstance is, no matter what anything is, what is it that Christians need in every single circumstance in life? To know God's will, meaning His purposes for them to live out in that moment so that they can not just know it, but do it. Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord in that doctor's office. Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord in that hard office situation. Be fully pleasing to Him when nobody around you cares about you pleasing Him. So that no matter what circumstance we're in, we can, by God's grace, empowered by the prayers of His people that He answers, we can be fruitful. We can grow. We can patiently endure. We can even be thankful. God commands us to do all those things in other places. But prayer is where we find the strength and ability and help to do them. Now imagine something else. One last thing to imagine. What if God answered every one of those requests for every one of us. How much would this church change? How much would other churches change that we pray for? And what if he only answered them to the degree that we prayed them? Paul prays for Christians he doesn't know. And I wonder, will you take what Paul has written down and either grow in or begin to pray for Christians you may not know?
You don't know their life. You don't know their circumstances. But you know what will please God. May God do that among us. Let's pray. Our Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus and we ask that we would be filled with the knowledge of your will. Your will even reflected in these verses that we have studied this morning. And that we wouldn't just have an outline of them. But Lord, that you would cause by your spirit our souls to awaken to the truth of these verses. That our taste buds would come alive as we think about these things. That we would be filled with a glorious experience of knowing what you say, what you want. And we pray that such knowledge will work itself out in our lives, that we will walk in a way to show what you are truly worth. You are worth our soul, our lives, our all. That in our family life, in our private life, in our thought life, in our work life, in our recreational life, in every area of life, who you are would be on display by how we live. And we pray, O oh God, that we would be fruitful people, that it would be clear that you are the one at work in our lives, that we would grow in our knowledge of who you are by living for you. That you would give us power according to your glorious might to, to endure and be patient in this world with joy. And that you would help us continually to give thanks first and foremost for all that you have done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray, Lord, that those who could not thank you for the salvation of Jesus as they walked in, that you would give them grace so that as they walk out for the first time, they can say, thank you, Lord. Cause us as a church to arise and put our armor on and fight the good fight of faith on our knees for one another and for your kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand? We're going to sing a song before uh, we conclude our service.